This morning we are continuing our series on marriage, uh, talking about that uh, relationship that we have. And, and last week we talked some about what happens if your marriage is really struggling right now. Where do we begin? What's one thing we can do? And we talked about forgiveness and about how powerful that can be, especially if your marriage is in a difficult place. Well, this week we're going to be talking some, well, what if your marriage, what if it feels like it's in a pretty good place? How do we, what's God's guidance for that? How do we faithfully follow Jesus when, when our marriage just seems like it's doing pretty well? And, you know, there's lots of things we could talk about. I mean, as always, we could talk about communication or maybe more awareness of yourself or humility or even about how following Jesus, how growing closer in your relationship with him helps your marriage. And I started to realize that our marriages are like, um, there's a similarity to this. We can make an analogy between a marriage and, say, a flying an airplane. And I've, I've never actually flown an airplane, so I can only tell you what I've read. <laughs> but, but one thing is that an airplane, Walter and, and Verrill, you guys have flown before. If you're flying a single-engine plane and you turn the engine off, what happens? <laughs> right. right. You slow down and you start losing lift and you start losing altitude. Right. And sometimes, and you know, it's the thing of we, an airplane, if you're flying it and you turn the engine off, it doesn't just keep on going. It doesn't just coast at altitude. You start to lose altitude. It starts to go down. But if the thing is, if you turn the engine back on, get under power again, you start gaining speed, you could fly higher. You could even fly higher than you were. And I see some of the connection here with, with marriages because sometimes when we are in a marriage and things seem to be going well, we can, for lack of a better word, turn the engine off. We can start to coast. And we think that we'll just keep coasting at altitude. Things will just continue on as they've been. Well, the thing is, you start to lose speed and you start to go down. Now, if you're at thousands of feet above the earth, you might say, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm still flying. I'm still, I haven't crashed or anything. But the thing is, you're starting to lose altitude. And sometimes people might think, well, you know, I'll turn the engine off and then when it really matters, I'll turn the engine back on and we'll gain altitude again and then coast for a while or fly for a bit and then I'll turn the engine off. And you kind of this up and down. How efficient is that flying, Walter? <laughs> no, that's a, that's a very inefficient way to fly. So I see this analogy with us in our marriages, especially when they're good, that we don't take them for granted, that we continue to uh, pour into our spouse, to care for our spouse, to encourage one another, to grow in our faith together. But how does God guide us in that? I mean, do we just pick any book off the shelf and start doing that? How does God want us to continue to grow in our marriages, to continue to, to pour into that relationship, to continue working on it, to continue flying, for lack of a better word? Now, how many of you ask that question in your marriage? How do I keep doing as well? How do I help my spouse? How do I encourage them? Or how do I uh, keep growing in faith so that I, can be, um, that I can be a growing part of our relationship? Anybody ask that? It's an important question. Our marriages are so important. Not only do they shape our family. I mean, think about it. Your marriage and the implication it has for your kids if you have children. Or your marriage and how it implies, the implication it has for your grandchildren, how it has for the family around you. What about the ways that our marriages speak the gospel? The ways that we care for one another. The ways that we love each other. The ways that we stick it out when much of the world around us says, if the going gets tough, find somebody else. How do our marriages speak the gospel? 
And like I said before, marriages, we can, if they're going well, we can begin to take them for granted. We can just say, it's going to be fun. She loves me and I'm going to, so I'm just going to kind of trust that and go on about my life. We don't realize that we start to lose altitude. Things start to go down. See, when things are good, we have this tendency to take it for granted. And sometimes it takes things going really bad before we wake up. Well, I'm saying, I'm encouraging you, I'm begging you, don't do that. Don't wait till it's bad before you start working on it. Continue. If your marriage is healthy, continue working on it. Continue pouring into one another. But I'm starting to wonder, like, what guidance does God give us in our marriage? And like I said earlier, do we just pick any book off the shelf? Do we go to some person, some uh, TV personality and ask them, you know, or, or watch their show on how to have a better marriage? I'm grateful for the Word of God because God's Word teaches about marriage, teaches about the relations. And many, there's many passages that are applicable to marriage, but one that people often turn to is this part of Ephesians where Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. And if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 21, or if you want to, you can just open your, your bulletin. It's here as well. Paul, speaking to the church, he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And after all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, I'm gonna, we're going to focus this morning, especially on the first part of that, especially the part speaking to the wives. And there's really just focusing there because that's the first part of the passage. And as I started working on the sermon this week, I realized we're going to be here for three hours if we talk about that whole text. So we're going to talk about the, the wives' portion this week, and then next week we'll talk about the men's portion. There's going to be a little bit of mixing, but just to, let you, to set you up for that. Now, the first thing is this says, Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives, submit to your husbands in everything. Now, before we get into unpacking that, one thing that I have to say is we hear this text almost the exact opposite of the way Paul's church, or Ephesus, heard this passage. And I'll explain this in a minute, but we have to be really careful when we just take this text and just plunk it down in our lives. We have to kind of understand what Paul is saying and how he's saying it. So when you listen to this text, the first thing to understand is the cultural difference between the first century Ephesus and 21st century Balfour, British Columbia. So the first thing is the role of men and women in that society. 
And the role of men and women in first century, um, women had a very different role. Just an example of this. In the first century, a woman was, uh, for the most part, uh, under the care of a man pretty much her whole life, unless she was a widow or some other extraneous circumstance. But for the most part, she was either under the care of her father or under the care of her husband. And actually, in a marriage ceremony, a lot of the ceremony was symbolic of her going from her father's house to her husband's house. She was always under someone um, of the care of a man. That's just how the first century worked. And I'm not saying whether it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's how it worked. An interesting thing, too, about it was the age differences. Typical age for a, for a girl to be married was between 12 and 15. Typical age for a guy to be married, depending on the culture. I mean, Jewish was a little bit earlier, like around 20. But some Greek, um, some parts of Greek culture said the guys needed to wait till they were 30. You can imagine how the difference, even if a 20-year-old man marrying a 15 or a 13-year-old girl. You can imagine the dynamic that begins to form there. How uh, a young girl would look up to a husband or trust the lead of her husband if he was 20 and she was 13. And interesting, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie The Nativity. Has anybody seen that movie? Okay, a few of you. Well, there's this part in the movie where... Mary, uh, just to set the scene for you, she's out in the field. She's um, kind of working, and I think she's planting seeds, sowing seeds. And she's talking with her girlfriends. You know, they're all about 13 or 14 years old, and there's some 13 or 14-year-old boys, and they're all kind of, you know, playing and kind of flirting with each other. And she comes home, and she sees her father in a serious conversation with Joseph. This is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Joseph, uh, Jesus' uh, father figure, um, the man who helped raise him. And... And she comes home and her face just drops because her father has just arranged her and just betrothed her to Joseph. She's getting ready in another year. It takes about a year in Jewish culture in the first century. She was going to be moving to Joseph's house. She was going to be marrying him. It's very different than our culture. Our culture today, we, we teach our daughters to think for themselves and to be smart and to go to college and uh, to establish their own life. And then... Um, begin looking for a guy who fits with them. That's kind of how our culture does it. But that wasn't the way it was in the first century. And it's also interesting to know, too, how marriage was different. As I kind of gave an example in the, in the nativity, in the first century, marriage was really different. It was, I think there's, I mean, I, I'm sure there were some people who married for love. But for the most part, it was more of a transaction. It was more of a transaction between a father and a husband than it was about dating and figuring out if you love them or not and want to spend the rest of your life with them. That really wasn't how marriage worked back then. It was more of an arrangement between a father and a husband. And it was often for the sake of keeping the family going. Sometimes it was for the sake of power or privilege. I mean, in in society, they rarely measured out of their class. Oftentimes you would try to measure up or try, try to marry up to have your daughter maybe marry into another family to, to make an alliance. Or sometimes you'd have a daughter marry a man for the sake of wealth, to, to grow your, your empire. That was really common in the first century. Marriage was very different. The other thing that I wanted to mention too is not only was marriage different than it is today, but also it was um, the rights of women were very different. 
I mean, even 100 years ago, they were very different. But in the first century, uh, for example, in Roman culture, it was very common for men, especially elite guys who could afford it. Um, I think guys who were poor didn't really have this option. But, but the elite guys, they would have, a, they talked about a wife for legitimate children. So they would get married. They'd have a wife to have a legitimate family, an honorable family. But then they would all, sometimes they would have slaves, women who were slaves. Or sometimes they would have um, um, courtesans or basically like escort service. They would have a woman that they would take to parties with them. And that was more common in that culture for guys to have his wife and their legitimate children and then maybe one or two or more other women who they sometimes had sexual relations with or had just had just relationships with. That was more common in that culture. I'm not saying that it was right or wrong. I'm just saying that's how it was. Well, I am saying that's wrong. That's not good. <laughs> that part I am saying, that's not good. That's not what God designed. But, so for example, if a, if a woman, say if a man were to catch his wife in adultery, he could prosecute her. And actually, Romans, in their idea of trying to make families stronger, they made it a legal issue for a woman to be in adultery. That a husband could prosecute the wife. Not only that, if he didn't, other, parts of the, like other people could prosecute the wife for adultery. And the adultery was this, was a married woman having an affair with any other man. That was adultery. The interesting thing is that a woman could not prosecute her husband for adultery. So he could have other uh, women, other relationships, um, and she was, it was not legal for her. She had no right to prosecute him. So you can see just even the difference in rights between men and women in the first century. So that's just a brief picture. That's just, and there's a lot more to it, but that's just to give us an idea of what it was like. And so we start hearing Paul say, wives, submit to your husbands, as to the Lord. And I tell you, everyone in the room, women, men, everyone is saying, absolutely, that's exactly what we, that's what we expect. And then Paul goes on to say, and husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And I could just about hear guys falling out of their seat. I could just about hear when he says, and, and he gave himself up for her. I could just about hear Guys getting ready to rebel. That's the part that was scandalous to them. When Jesus says, Hus-, or when, when Paul tells them to love your wife as, you lo- as Jesus loved the church. That was a part that was completely unheard of. Which is interesting for us. And it's, to me, it speaks the gospel and how the gospel changes culture. How the gospel has changed our world. Because that's the part that we naturally connect to now. That's the part we say, yeah, that's good. And it's when it says, wives, submit to your husband. That's the part that we feel a little bit scandalized by. To me, this is proof that the gospel is changing the world. Because when Paul wrote that to the first church, the role of women was very different. And when you start thinking about what Paul spoke to places, like what he wrote to the church in Galatia, He said, there's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing statement. That's a world-changing statement. That's the gospel changing our world. So I wanted to say, to talk some just about the culture before we get into this passage. 
Because we have to understand that the, the culture, the people that Paul is writing to, have very different ideas about women and marriage and men. So with that, we start getting into the passage. The first thing that I realize as we're, as we're reading this passage is this is God's guidance for us. It's, and you might think, well, this is just his letter to Ephesians. What about, well, it's pretty common. I mean, it's in Colossians and it's in First Timothy. Similar guide. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Now this, this, same, this uh, segment here is saying, uh, wives, submit to your husbands. I can imagine that being hard for some of you women. I mean, we live in a culture right now that is very much about individuality, about every person's rights, about being the, the, the one who decides your own destiny. I can understand that's the culture we live in. Not only that, but I, I bet you that many of you women have, have trusted other people to lead. Maybe one of your parents, maybe a, a good friend or another man. You've trusted someone to lead, and they've let you down. They've failed you. They didn't lead well. In fact, they led horribly, or they hurt you. I can understand that, where you would say, and I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to, put the tr- I'm never going to trust my life to someone else again. I know what that's like. I remember when, uh, when my dad died, life felt like it fell apart. And I remember telling myself, I'm going to be in control of my life from now on. And I'm still working to undo that. So I understand, and I, or I can understand. I want to be careful. I don't assume too much. But I could see where if you're a woman, this could be really hard teaching to submit to your husband. I do want to make one caveat here. And I don't know as I look at you, I don't know if this, but it could, is that if you're in an abusive relationship right now, then this text, this text, we need to talk, it has a, a very different conversation about how this text applies to your marriage. So if you're in an abusive relationship, whether it's emotional or physical or sexual, we need, to talk, we need to have a different conversation than what you're hearing this morning. So if that is your situation, please come talk to me. And, and we can begin a conversation. So I just wanted to say that. So that's the first thing, is that working through that first initial shock of wives submit to your husband. But the thing I realized, too, is that there is this connection. Paul makes this continual connection between submitting to your husband and following Jesus. Between trusting your husband to lead and following Jesus. I don't know if you've caught that, but he's not saying, trust your husband to lead because he deserves it. He doesn't say that. And guys, I'm sorry, I don't want to burst your bubble, but we don't deserve it. He's saying, follow your husband's lead. Trust your husband to lead because you trust Christ to lead. Because you've devoted your life to Jesus. And you're trusting that God will work that out. Now again, if you're in an abusive situation, we need to have a different conversation. But generally speaking, 
We trust your husband to lead, not because he's a great leader, not because he never messes up, but because you're following Jesus, because you're trusting Jesus. And some of you might think, well, or I shouldn't say some of you, but there might be a temptation to think, well, okay, fine, that he can lead. If he's going to be the leader, then he's going to get everything that comes with that. And you might say, well, he's the leader now. You decide. You deal with it. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think he's saying, trust your husband to lead. But I also think he's saying, help him to lead. And we'll get into more of that in a minute. But I was realizing, too, that for if your husband is a follower of Jesus, that this takes on another uh, level too, in that it's not just that Paul is saying, trust your husband, and then whatever he decides is okay. It's not necessarily what he's saying. I think if your husband is following Jesus, you can trust that too. That even adds another level of trust to it. What I mean is, he's saying that if you make the connection or if you read it, he's saying wives submit to your husbands and husbands submit to Jesus as all of you are submitting to Jesus, like the church submits to Jesus. So it's not just saying wives just hitch your cart to your husband and let him do whatever. It's saying wives hitch your cart to your husband and it's actually good news if he has hitched his cart to Jesus. He's not just going to lead you wherever if he's following Jesus. But guys, this is a huge responsibility for us. This is an enormous responsibility for us to be faithfully following Jesus, for us to be growing in our relationship so that we can love our wife as Christ loved the church, but also that we can honor the the trust that she's giving us. It's a huge responsibility. (laughs) Yeah. Now, I want to say this, too, that, you know, that... Some people, like some uh, scholars have read this passage and they've read into it, I would say read into it, a condition, like a conditional phrase. Wives submit to your husbands so long as your husband is loving a wife, loving his wife as Christ loved the church. It's not there. It's, it's not conditional. Which can be even harder if your husband's not a great leader. It can be harder for you wives to trust your husband to lead if he's not a great leader. Or maybe he's hurt you or let you down. Or maybe he's not following Jesus. Do you still have to trust him then? It's a great question. Tracy and I talked just a little bit about it. And, and I still believe that Paul's saying, trust your husband to lead. He doesn't say... Uh, if he's this or if he's that or if he does this or doesn't do that. He just says, trust your husband to lead. I think there's faithfulness in that. Trusting your husband to lead, there's faithfulness in that. And I think God can use that to one, to help a husband who doesn't lead well, to help them lead well. I think God can also use that in the life, say if your husband's a non-believer or doesn't follow Jesus yet. I think God can use that too. Husband starts saying, why do you treat me like this? Why do you keep trusting me to lead even how many times I've messed up? You say, because it's my faith. I'm trusting Jesus. So I'm trusting you. There's this connection with 
trusting your husband to lead and trusting Jesus. I believe the Holy Spirit will work in that. I believe the Holy Spirit will honor your faithfulness. Even if your husband doesn't, the Holy Spirit will. So some of you might be thinking, you know, does that mean I just have to, what do we mean by submit or trust in my husband? Does that mean I just have to bite my tongue and go along with whatever he says? I don't think so. Let me explain what I mean by that. I think, and in other parts, actually in this same letter, Paul's teaching to the whole church, he says, speak the truth in love. I think that's healthy in a marriage relationship. For wives, for you, even though you're trusting your husband to lead, to speak the truth in love. I think that means it's okay for you to make a point. To say, here's why I think this is what we should do. Why is I think that means it's okay for you to question the direction your husband is, is choosing, especially if it's not a faithful direction. I think that God has put us together so that you can question him on that, that you can, you can counsel him on that. I mean, I ask Tracy for her advice all the time. And sometimes I take it. <laughs> no, a lot of the time I take it. She's a brilliant lady. I'm grateful for her. So it does, it does mean that we... I'm sorry, it doesn't mean that we just bite our tongue or the Sorry, we. I'm not a wife. That women, that you just bite your tongue and just go along with whatever he says. I think it means you can make a point, you can question, you can counsel. But I think Paul is saying, after you've done all of that and you've had your conversation, maybe even a heated conversation, after all of that, you still trust him to lead. Even if it's not what you want, even if it's not what you trust, or sorry, not what you wanted, the decision you wanted, you trust him to lead. I know how hard that is. <laughs> even as I'm saying, I know what sort of situation like you can already start thinking of. I can think of one example where that has worked for us, even in this last week. That's your story? Okay. I'll wait. Tracy will tell you that story. <laughs> so, this is, I mean, this is God's word to us. You know, and if we're going to follow Jesus, I think we take the whole thing. I don't think we get to choose. And I, I wanted to say this even while I was talking about the differences in cultures, because sometimes people do that. And it's a really slippery slope to say, well, that was that culture and this is this culture, so we have to sort of change it to fit us. I am really reluctant with that line of, of theology because you can get all sorts of things. You can actually just basically get whatever you want. If that's So I'm saying that even though the cultures are different and we have to understand that, we still have to let the text speak to us. Even when it says, wives, submit to your husband, which sounds very different than our culture today. So... You know, the question is, how do we work this out? So I've, you know, we've talked some about what this could look like generally. But, and I thought, rather than me talk about what it could look like, I've asked Tracy if she would talk some about how she works this out. And she's in the story that I was going to tell. She's going to tell you Hello. So I have notes, too, but I don't have them memorized like he does. So here we go. I'm going to have to look at them some. Um, so I first just want to say where I came from. I mean, you all know me. I am um, opinionated and independent and boisterous. That's a fancy word for loud. <laughs> That's me. That's who I am. Um, 
and, and that's the life that I sort of grew up living, um, encouraged by my mom to do that. And I just want to say also that uh, part of my independence, uh, it's, it's who I am, but it also came out of a place of hurt. Um, I was a young girl when my parents divorced, and my mom taught me through living with a single parent that I needed to stand on my own two feet. And I actually can recall a conversation that I had, and I just must imagine what it must have felt like for my father um, to hear his daughter say this, because my parents divorced because of adultery. Um, My dad asked me one day in the car, like, what did I want? What did I want to be when I grew up? He loved to talk about that. What did I want to be? And I said, I want to have my own house and my own car and a job, so that way if my husband cheats on me, I can kick him out. That's what I said to my adulterer dad. That's the life that I grew up living. That's the kind of mindset that I grew up with. And I moved 2,000 miles away from home to go to university, and I was appalled at all of the men who took their laundry home to mom for the weekend and swore that I would date none of them because who does that? That's what I was thinking at the time, right? So just to set the frame, this is who I am. This is where I come from. And enter Jason. And we date for a short period of time, and we get married. And on our honeymoon, um, I just get out of the taxi, and I go into the hotel, and I say, Ashley, party of two, we're here. Like, what's our room? And he looks at me, and he's like, we're on our honeymoon. Can you let me do that? I just, I didn't get it. I didn't, I didn't know the dynamic of our relationship. I'm this independent woman. I'm marching in to get my hotel room. And he's like, hello, I'm right here. Can I, you know, let me love you. Let me love you. And uh, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary, and I'm still learning. Thank you. I'm still learning how to do that. I'm still learning how to let him lead me. Um, I do it. I don't do it well all of the time, but I, I do. I'm learning to do this. Um, so why do I do it? Why do I submit to him and let him lead me? Because I've just stated the case for what an individual I am, you know, how independent I am. Um, I think it's interesting, and I didn't bring my Bible up here, but it's okay. I don't actually need it. The end of that passage that Jason read in Ephesians um, quotes Genesis chapter 2, and it it talks about when a man and woman come together, that they are no longer two, but they become one. And so if I believe that, if I believe what the scriptures say, um, just like it's saying for a man here, who doesn't love his own body? Well, who doesn't allow um, his own body to lead? And so if I believe that instead of being two individuals, that we are one, then I want to let him lead. Does that make sense? You follow? It's not easy all the time because I have this um, spirit that's pulling me and I have my own ideas. Some of them, sometimes they're very strong. Um, But I I try to practice that um, because I do believe that when we decided to enter into a marriage relationship that... I left a part of me, this I can do anything on my own whenever I want to, behind. Does that mean that I don't like to do things, that I, that I don't have my own opinion, or you know, I don't want to go hang out with my girlfriends or whatever? No, of course not. That, that's not what that means. Um, it does mean that I look to him. If he feels strongly about something, we have that conversation. Um, the example that he was going to give was just this week. We're doing all sorts of magic show preparations, and um, we're having a hard time finding a portable stage for this guy to stand on. 
like this. So if anybody ever wants to build a stage, there will be times when someone will want to rent it from you. I'm just saying. Just a little business opportunity. I'll interject that in there. So I'm feeling strongly like Verl. You wouldn't be able to see him do his thing if he weren't on a stage. And I don't want people to pay money for something that they can't see. I'm feeling bad about that. And Jason is done with it. Like, we are moving on because we can't find one. And so we have this conversation. Okay, I feel strongly about it, and you're over it. And so I finally just said, but I trust you. Like, you're going to look into it one last time, and if it doesn't work out, then I trust you to make the best decision because I have my opinion and you have yours, and we're not seeing eye to eye. And so he did a little investigation, and we came up with a totally alternate solution. So I didn't get what I wanted. He sort of got what he wanted, but I felt happy about the decision that was made. So that, that's what I'm saying. He's laughing. It's better, it's better when he tells a story. But this is what I'm saying. I said to him, I trust you to make the decision because it, nothing seems to be working out, and we, we aren't seeing eye, and eye to eye, and so here we are. I, I trust you to make this decision. Um, the same thing can be true for our adoption. You know, I, I have wanted to adopt a child since um, I, before I was married. I just felt like that was a part of who I was. And after we had Shalem, Jason was sort of like, oh, I don't know about that. I'm not really sure. And so I just let it, I let it go. And then one day he comes to me and says, I think we should adopt a child. What? So I, I wasn't forcing my idea. I was trusting God to do this thing that he had put in my heart. And because Jason has a relationship with God, God spoke that to him as well. Um, so you can see that uh, I still am who I am. Um, <laughs> sometimes for good and sometimes for crazy, but it, it is what it is. And um, I still express my opinion to him, but... I also say to him, because I love you and because I know you love me, I trust you. And there you go. Is good? I told you she was brilliant. <laughs> well, I think you're brilliant. So each week we have this, like, coming down to, to one thing. What's one thing that we can do? And, and actually it's, it's different for... For ladies, wives, for you, one thing, I'm going to ask you to trust your husband to lead this week. Trust him with something to lead. And I know this, depending on where you come from, Tracy shared some of her story, it can be really challenging. But I'm going to ask you to do it. I'm going to ask you to trust your husband to lead because I think, I believe, that Jesus will honor that. I believe that the Holy Spirit will honor that. I mean, I didn't know that Tracy was going to talk about the adoption part, but I think that's an example of, of Christ, of the Holy Spirit working in me then to honor her trusting me with it. I mean, same with the stage. I, I, didn't, I was going to say, too, that when she trusted me to take care of it, it, it made me want to do a good job to see if there's any way I could find to, to do what she wanted, to figure it out. So I called Dave Story, I called the magician, and he said, here's, a, you know, here's another option that works. And I said, I think we found it. She said, that works great. Let's do that. So I think women, if I can just encourage you, I mean, it, I know it doesn't go great all the time because sometimes you'll trust someone, you'll trust your husband and they'll let you down. I know that. I do that. God forgive me. But this week I'm asking you to find one way to trust your husband. Trust him to lead. 
And I say to this too because there is a connection with trusting someone and them living up to it. You know, there's, if we don't trust people and we tell them how untrustworthy they are, they will live up to that. But if we tell them, I trust you, I'm trusting to lead. I believe that, I believe most of the guys here, and I know you, I'd say even all of the guys here, they will do their best to lead then. You know, we live in a world where guys, I mean, a part of who we are, like a major part of who we are, is being competent, kind of knowing what we're doing about stuff. And when someone says, I trust you to lead, that can be terrifying. It's an insecurity that we all struggle with. And some guys, they're insecure, they deal with it by being really macho. That's just dealing, that's just how they overcompensate for their insecurity. Some guys deal with it by always, by never wanting to take the lead because they're afraid to. But I'm saying that wise, you have an opportunity to say, I'm trusting you to lead. And how that is a vote of confidence for them. How it's saying that I trust you and I know the guys here, they are going to live up to that or try to. So that's the first thing. Why is I'm going to ask you to trust your husband to lead this way? Find one way to trust him to lead this week. Guys, I'm going to ask you to do a different thing. I'm going to ask you to grow in your relationship with Jesus this week because she's trusting you. And the most honorable thing I think you can do to, to honor that trust or the best thing is to grow in your relationship with Jesus so that when she trusts you to lead, that you're leading her the way that God wants you to lead her. So do those things this week. Wives, trust your husband to lead. Husbands, grow in your relationship with Jesus so that you honor her trust. Imagine what this could be. I get excited as I think about you doing that this week. Imagine the things that might start to break loose in your relationship. Maybe you've been flying for a while and the engine's been off. Maybe this is just the sort of thing that turns the engine back on again. You've got to start picking up speed and climbing again. Recovering some of the things that you used to have. Maybe finding new parts of your relationship. Wives, trusting your husbands. Husbands, growing in your relationship with Jesus so that you honor that trust that she gives you. I mean, I know it, it can be, seem difficult. I mean, many of you have been married. Some of you have been married longer than I've been alive. And you might think, how is anything going to change? We serve an amazing God. An amazing God who does miraculous things. So I encourage you, wives, trust your husband to lead this week. Husbands, grow in your relationship with Jesus so that you honor that trust he's given you. Amen.